Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not in temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if he, his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let me pray. Father, we, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, as we consider what it is that Jesus taught his disciples, we ask that, that we would be men and women who pray consistently, who pray boldly, who pray knowing that because of the work of your Son and your Holy Spirit, we are in union with Jesus. And thus we are in communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and that we would commune with you, that we would know how to pray, and that you would work in us so that we pray. Father, work in us so that we understand what a good and gracious and giving God you are, so that our prayer lives match up with the gospel that we preach, so that your son would be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. How's your prayer life? Did you guys hear that question? How's your prayer life? What does your communion with the Father look like? I mean, do you, do you feel like you have an intense communion with the Father in which you're hearing from him through his word as you're meditating on a day and night, and then you're turning around and, and praying to him and making your requests known to him and thanking him and praising him for who he is? Do you pray daily? And do you set aside time during the day to pray? Do you pray throughout the day? Is it a regular part of your life and communion with the Father just to be communicating with him, thanking him for what you see around you, pointing out the evidences of his grace in your life, asking him throughout the day to help you keep your mind on him as you see all his good gifts from his hand, just saying, Lord, I thank you that this came from your hand. Help me not to make it an idol. Help me just to worship you and thank you for it. Do you believe your prayer life is rich? Do you, do you even feel like you even know how to pray? Do you trust God to hear your prayers and answer them? I mean, when you pray, when you make your request known to God, are you expecting God to even answer? Do you really believe he hears you? Or does bringing up the subject of prayer 
already caused some conviction in you before I even say anything about it because your prayer life is lacking. Well, well, it probably brings conviction in a lot of us. And let me add to the mounting conviction. Are you ready? I want to add to the mounting conviction as we begin to hear Jesus teach on prayer. The 19th century preacher Robert Murray McShane, while speaking about prayer, said the following, a man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. Hear that? A man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. Nothing more clearly demonstrates who we believe God is and who we believe we are than prayer. If I do not pray much, then I demonstrate that I either have too low a view of God or too high a view of myself. Those who rightly pray, or pray rightly and often, are those who are humble and are those who trust the Lord. Those who don't pray much are those who are prideful and who trust in themselves. Jesus was a man who prayed much. He's constantly found praying. And as he does pray, the disciples ask him on more than one occasion to teach them to pray. In other words, it wasn't unusual for the disciples, disciples of a rabbi to come to the rabbi and say, teach us to pray. John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray a particular way. Other rabbis teach their disciples how to pray a particular way. We see that you're a man of prayer. Will you teach us to pray? And they ask him to teach them to pray more than one, on more than one occasion. And Luke records one of the occasions in which Jesus taught the disciples about prayer. Matthew records another occasion at the Sermon on the Mount in which he taught them about prayer. And what I want to do is I want to look at what Jesus taught here about prayer. Because I think the bottom line is, is that most of us probably don't pray as much as we know we should or would like to. A lot of us probably don't even know how we should even approach prayer. Many of us probably just think, I come in to pray, and my mind starts to wander all these different places, and I'm not sure what to do, and I feel like I'm constantly being selfish. I'd like this, and I'd like that, and I'd like this, and I don't know what it even means to pray. And I don't even know if God hears me or answers me. So I want to hear what Jesus taught about prayer to his disciples. And what, as we do look at this particular occasion in which Jesus taught them about prayer, I want you to see five truths regarding prayer that we learn from Jesus. Okay, So five of them today. First, here's the first one. Prayer is to be our priority. Did you hear that? First truth we hear from him. Prayer is to be our priority. Look at verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. We don't know where. He was just praying. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Jesus was praying in a certain place. That's a phrase we hear from Luke again and again. Luke emphasizes in his gospel the fact that Jesus' prayer life is a priority for him. It's a huge emphasis in Luke, the prayer of Jesus. Jesus prays at every significant point in this book and repeatedly teaches the disciples to pray. Look, look at just a few of them. Luke chapter 3. Hold your hand there and I'll go through some of them. Luke chapter 3. As Jesus is being baptized, as he's come for his baptism, a significant point in his life in which he is anointed for his earthly ministry in his life and death. At this point of his anointing, what do we find Jesus doing? Now when all, Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. Luke throws that in. 
He wasn't just baptized. He was praying. And then this event happened in which the Father, the Holy Spirit descends and the voice comes from heaven from the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus prays at his own anointing for ministry. Look at Luke chapter 5 and verse 16. After he cleanses the leper, he's done some of these miracles in which he's called the disciples and he's cleansed the leper. And in verse 16, Luke throws in this parenthetical comment almost, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Jesus is doing some more teaching and healing, and he's going to call now the 12 men who would be his apostles. Another significant point in his ministry, not only his anointing, but now the calling of the 12 apostles. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So here we have an occasion which Jesus is going to call these apostles, and before he does, he's up all night praying. We keep hearing these comments about him, Luke chapter 9 and verse 28. Luke chapter 9 and verse 28, which we know as the, the passage on the transfiguration of Christ, in which the disciples see him in his glory, at least three of them do, in his glory, and the Father speaks of him. A major moment in the life of Jesus. Verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, transfiguration takes place. Jesus continues to go to desolate places to pray, continues to go to the mountain to pray, is, is in the baptism at his own anointing and prays, is going to appoint his 12 apostles, and what does he do first? All night praying, Luke chapter 10, verse 2. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, and listen, here's an instruction on prayer for them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In other words, <clears throat> let's look at the harvest. They're white for the har- it's white for, for harvesting. Go out there to the fields and harvest them. But there are more people out there than you have laborers to share the gospel with. And so we need to pray that God would raise up more people to go with you to the harvest. Luke chapter 18. Obviously in chapter 11 he's praying, which we're looking at today. But go forward to Luke chapter 18. Jesus again teaches his disciples on prayer. And I want you just to hear the introduction of that. We'll deal with this passage probably in the spring. (laughs) But, and he told them a parable, Luke 18 verse 1. To the effect that, what's the purpose of the parable? To the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Luke chapter 22, the night before Jesus' death, as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, and verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in, an, in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like drops, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
See, prayer was Jesus' priority. Prayer came before and in the midst of and after everything he did. And Luke emphasizes that. And prayer is to be our priority. Think of it. Jesus is the eternal son of God who shares perfect union and communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he believes he needs to continually pray. How much more us? If the God-man, the one who never sinned, the one who is the second person of the Trinity in flesh needs to pray, desires to pray, is continuously in prayer, how much more us? But we often put prayer way down our list of to-dos if we're honest, right? I'm going to pray 15 minutes every morning. Oh, man, this came up, and this came up, and this came up. I forgot to pray. And what we often find, if we're honest, is that prayer tends to happen for us after we figure out we can't do anything about a situation, right? Once we really feel helpless, that's when we start to pray, really pray. As long as we think we have some kind of control, as long as we hold on to some illusion that we can work it all out, we don't pray as much. This week I went to Hume Lake with my son's sixth grade class. He's in Christian school, and for their science camp, they go up to Hume Lake and, and do it there. And it was a great time. And one of the things my son wanted me to do is he wanted me to go on the high ropes course. You guys know what a high ropes course is? It's up in the trees. It's like 30, 40 feet high. And, um, and I'm, not, I'm, you know, I'm built for comfort, not for speed, right? So I, I didn't really want to go up in these trees. And, and my son's like, come on, Dad. And he's like a monkey, right, going through these trees. Come up with me. So I get all harnessed in, and I go up. And and I went, and, and it was okay the first third of the obstacle course, but then we get to this point where it starts to go up in difficulty. And there's this rope, and it's like basically a rope hanging there, and you're on one platform, and there's the other platform. You're like 40 feet up, and you have to swing on this rope like Tarzan through the trees or the next platform and then land on that platform and then grab the next rope and swing to the next platform. And I'm going, can I hold my body weight on a rope and swing through the trees? I'm not sure I can. I don't think I'm built for this. So guess what I immediately started doing? Praying. <laughs> immediately, I'm going, Lord, you've got to. That is a long way down there. <clears throat> and I started praying. Our problem is that we trust in God too little and ourselves too much. And so we tend to only really pray when the illusion that we have control is taken from us. That's why, you know, we have this saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. You guys heard that saying? Yet, here's the problem. We're not always in foxholes, are we? And so while we often live our daily lives just like the atheists do, not praying, we're taking joy in the fact that there are no atheists in foxholes. As if somehow our lives practically aren't being lived out the same way their lives are. Because we're only praying when we're in the foxhole too, sadly. In other words, our prayer lives aren't really too different than theirs. We basically live our day-to-day -day lives like practical atheists. We both pray, both us and atheists, when the sham of our self-sufficiency ends. We live as if we're self-sufficient and we pray very little. Prayer is a posture. I want you guys to hear this. Prayer is a posture that leans into God's sufficiency. It's the act of someone who thinks greatly of the love and kindness and grace of God. Prayerlessness, not praying, is a posture that leans into self-sufficiency. 
It's the act of someone who thinks the love, thinks little really of the love and kindness and grace of God. And Jesus, as a man, leaned into God's sufficiency, and so should we. Prayer should be our priority. Second thing we learn here from Jesus is that prayer is a privilege. Prayer is a privilege. Look at verse 2. And he, that being Jesus, said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Now he starts with his address. Father, here's the way you address him. The requests are coming next. The petitions are following this. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, etc. Those are following, but first he gives us an address, and it's in a peculiar address. Father. Address him as your father. Wait, this is the God of all things. I'm supposed to call him dad? Yes, you are. But, but wait a minute. On my own, I'm an enemy of God. You know that on our own, apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. We're not his friends and we're not his children. We are sinners by nature and by choice, and sin has put us at enmity with God. On our own, we are children of wrath and children of our father, the devil, not children of God. God has no obligation to hear the prayers of his enemies, and God makes no promises to hear the prayers of his enemies. So why does Jesus tell us to address God as Father? On what basis do I get to call God dad and expect that he'll hear me? On what basis? Is it on the basis of my own, basis of my own life? See, we all tend to think that because we were created, that we're just all God's children. It's like a universal brotherhood of man and fatherhood of God. That is not biblical. We think that God should hear us whether we're repentant or not. Never promises that anywhere in Scripture. What he promises is that you're his enemies because of your sin and that you will endure his wrath because of your sin. So on what basis do I get to pray? See, I have a huge problem. I have a God who's, who's my enemy in my natural state. Not a God who hears me and wants to answer my prayer. Not a God I can call my dad in my natural state. So what's my pro- that's a huge problem. How does that get resolved? That's why Jesus came. Because Jesus is the son of the father. And he was perfect, holy, sinless, undefiled. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. He lived perfectly the law that I failed to keep. He never sinned in any way. Was always the friend and the son of the Father. Went to the cross and paid my penalty. Became the curse on the cross for me. The curse that was due to me. The curse that was due to everyone who would ever believe Jesus took upon himself on the cross. He took that curse so that we would be blessed. He went to the cross and suffered that. He took the penalty for our sin. And then he rose on the third day from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that those who believe in him would be saved, would be forgiven from our sins, would be declared righteous. But more than that, he sent his Holy Spirit to give us new life, to adopt us as children of God, so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. So we can call out to our dad. He adopted us. That's how we have the privilege of saying, Father, because we're adopted. We're not natural-born children of God. We're adopted children of God in Christ through faith. Think about Jesus' prayer life. I told you Jesus prays on every occasion. And what we notice in all the Gospels is that in every occasion in which Jesus prays, every single time Jesus prays, except one, he addresses God as Father. 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 He's always addressing his Father, except one instance One instance, he does not address God as Father, and that's at the cross. When the Father turns his face away from Jesus 
at that moment that the Father turns his face away from Jesus and the Father's wrath is poured out upon Jesus for our sin, at the moment in which he becomes sin for us, at that moment he does not call him Father. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the cry of the damned. That is the cry that will be heard from hell for eternity. That is the prayer we ought to be praying for eternity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried that out in our place so that we could pray, Father. He prayed that so we could pray, Father. If we trust in Jesus, we're forgiven for our sins and declared righteous and adopted as children of God, and so we can pray, Father. And that is the privilege that we have in prayer. Prayer is the privilege all believers have to fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father hears us and wants to answer us because we're his children in Christ. Third, prayer should consist in God-centered petitions. Hear that? Prayer should consist in God-centered petitions. And he said to them, verse 2, When you pray, pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. That's the second petition. Third, give us each day our daily bread. Four, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And fifth petition, lead us not in temptation. Now you'll notice right off that this prayer is very similar to the prayer that Jesus teaches the disciples on the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. It's similar to what we normally think of as the Lord's Prayer. However, this is a different occasion in which Jesus is teaching them to pray. And on this occasion, he actually, actually changes it up a bit. It's not as long as the prayer that Matthew records in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll notice the, the cadence is different. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And then he skips what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He doesn't say our Father in heaven. He just jumps right to Father. So there are some changes here, some shortening of it. So he skips that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And at the end, he says, lead us not into temptation. He doesn't say what? Deliver us from the evil one. And though the prayer is shorter, it essentially has the same shape as the Lord's Prayer that we hear in Matthew 6. And I want to give you a short overview of these petitions, okay? I'm not going to give you like the next six weeks on each petition. If, if you want that series, I preached that already. I did nine weeks in the Lord's Prayer. You can go look that up. This, but I want to just give you a short overview. And what I want you to see is that all five of these petitions are God-centered and they are countercultural. So let's look at the five God-centered and countercultural petitions that he teaches. The first one, hallowed be thy name. That's speaking about God's reputation. When we talk about the name of God and we want it to be hallowed, we want it to be held up, holy, set apart, praised. We want his name to be lifted up. We're talking about his reputation. It sums up all of who he is and what he does. We want God's name to be exalted. Hallowed be your name. Let your reputation be writ large across my own life and throughout this world. We're asking to see his holiness and his reputation spread in our hearts and in our families and in our churches, in our cities, in our states, in our country, in every place on earth. We want God's reputation to be held up. Hallowed be your name. Work in me, Father, in such a way. Work in us because this is us praying together incidentally. Work in us that your name would be made holy in my life. 
that your reputation would look good in my life and in my church and in my family and in my city and throughout the world. Hallowed be your name. Second, your kingdom come. This isn't speaking about his reputation. This now is speaking about his rule, his reign. Your kingdom come. This idea that we want to submit to your word and your rule. It's caught up in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew as your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we want you to rule. We want your will to reign. You are the king, and we want to see your kingdom spread. And we want to see your son return. He started this kingdom when he died and rose from the dead, and we want to see him consummate it, return, and put his final enemy, death, under his feet and crush Satan finally and fully under our feet, as Paul says he will in Romans 16, 19. Bring that day in which sin and sorrow and suffering and death end. And until that day, let your kingdom of grace, the kingdom of your beloved son, rescue more and more and more people from the kingdom of darkness and let them come in. I want to see people submitting to your word and your will, and looking to your son in my own family, in our own church, in our city, in our nation, and throughout the world. I want you to hold on to me so that I continually submit to your word, so that I continually live for your son under your rule. Third petition, provision, the petition of provision, and it's really physical provision. Give us each day our daily bread. It's a pretty simple prayer. I have needs, physical needs, and God, I'm asking you to provide them. It's this idea of provision. We're asking God and trusting God to provide for our physical needs. We want our daily bread. Notice he doesn't say, give us each day huge stores of bread for the future. Just provide what I need for today. We're not asking for all we want. We're asking for what we need. Now, doesn't this mean that we, or I should say this, does this mean that we shouldn't ask for what we want? No, you can ask for what you want. Please, ask for what you want. Ask for it all the time. What this means is that God doesn't promise to give you all you want. He promises to give you all you need. He may give you what you want too. But his promise is to give you all you need. So you ask him for what you need. He promises to care for the needs of his children. Jesus elaborates on this in Matthew 6 when he says, why are you you anxious? Don't you know that God cares for the lilies of the field? He clothes them in splendor. He cares for the birds of the air. They don't store up. They don't have barns that they gather things into, yet he cares for them. How much more is children? Trust him to provide for you. If you go back in the Exodus, as the people are in the wilderness, God drops manna from heaven. He provides what they need every day for years, and they start complaining about it because they want more. He says, you want more? I'll give you more. I'll give you pigeons. Basically, I'll give you meat until it comes out of your nostrils, right? He's going to teach them a lesson. He provided what they needed. And he will provide for his children. So we ask him to provide for our physical needs. Fourth, Pardon, forgive us our sins, for we also, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. 
See, we're begging God to forgive us, to pardon us. He's taking care of our moral needs. If the previous one was our physical needs, now this is our moral needs. We are sinners, and we are begging God to forgive us. The Christian life, as Martin Luther called it, is a life of repentance. You don't just repent at the beginning of the Christian life. It is daily repentance. These are children of God asking for forgiveness. Notice we address him as father. He's telling Christians how to pray. Christians, yes, Jesus forgave you, and you still continually pray that he will continually forgive you because you recognize that you're continually sinning. We continually come before God, humbly remembering that we don't deserve to be there. And we're characterized as those also, he goes on to say, who forgive others. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. This is like a, it's like a statement about us, a characteristic about us. Forgive us our sins, Father, because we're Christians. We've obviously been born again of the Holy Spirit and changed because we're the kind of people who are now forgiving everyone who's indebted to us, so forgive us too. Don't forgive us on the basis that we forgive other people. Don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying that because I forgive other people, on that basis forgive me. What he's saying is because I'm your child, I'm the kind of person who forgives that demonstrates I'm the kind of person, as I'm forgiving, it demonstrates I'm the kind of person that does that. I'm your child. That's demonstrating that. It's proving I'm your child because I'm forgiving people. So forgive me because you promised to forgive your children. So we're constantly asking him to. Fifth, lead us not in temptation. It's a prayer for protection. Say your provision is your physical needs, your pardon is your moral need, and your protection is your spiritual need. Lead us not in temptation. We need God to keep us from temptation because we're toast on our own, aren't we? The world of the flesh and the devil will kick your can if you try to stand against temptation and sin on your own. You'll lose. Let's be very clear. You will lose on your own. We need God to protect us. We need him to help us resist sin and temptation. We need him to give us wisdom. We even need him, and we need to ask him to even keep us out of situations where temptation may be in front of us. Not just help us once it's in front of us, but even, Lord, spare me from situations in which I'll be overcome with temptation. So we're asking him to protect us. Look, this is a simple way to pray. You have five fingers on your hand, right? Well, four fingers and a thumb, but you understand what I'm saying. Okay, five on your hand. First one, God's reputation. Second one, God's rule. Third, physical provision for me. Fourth, pardon for my sin. Fifth, spiritual protection. That's how I pray. You see that I come up here and lead you through the Lord's Prayer every Sunday morning. I do that so it gets in your head, so that you have a model to pray. If you're looking for a way to pray, pray that way. You don't just repeat these words endlessly. Father, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Maybe if I say that five more times, it'll work. It's not a magic incantation. It's a model for prayer. So you use it. In a culture that is increasingly profane, 
we pray for holiness. And in a culture that loves autonomy, i.e. their own agendas, we ask to be ruled by God's agenda. In a culture in love with independence and luxury, we dependently ask for what we need. In a culture in love with its own goodness and ready to either sweep offenses under the rug or retreat in bitterness, we ask for forgiveness from God and are characterized by forgiving others. In a culture that loves to multiply and boast in its temptations and sins, we ask for God to protect us from sin. It's essentially what we're doing in the Lord's Prayer. That's why it's countercultural and God-centered. Fourth lesson we learn from Jesus is prayer is to be persistent. Verse 5, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Here's the thing. In the first century world, you were required to provide hospitality. In fact, much of your reputation in the community was on the line based on how hospitable you are to people who come to visit, whether they're strangers or people you know. So when someone comes to town, you provide for them. And in this case, someone came to town about midnight. A traveler showed up about midnight, and this guy is saying, I'm going to be hospitable. He's arrived, and after a long journey, showing up at midnight, what does my friend probably want? He probably wants some food. He's probably hungry. So I want to provide for him, but I don't have any bread. So what am I going to do? Well, I'll go to my neighbor's house, my next-door neighbor, and I'll wake him up and ask him for some food. So he's arrived journey. I have nothing set before him. Verse 7 And he'll answer from within. Now notice, he answers three times. He gives all these excuses. Do not bother me. Now here's why. Don't bother me. No, I don't want to answer you. Two, the door is now shut. Three, my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. This is ridiculous. It's like the guy who's behind the door who says, go away, nobody's home. Right? Nobody's here. That's essentially what he's doing. I don't want to get up. I don't want to help you right now. Verse 8. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend. In other words, he's not going to be like, man, this is my friend next door banging on my door at midnight. I so want to help him out. I'm going to get up and give him something because I'm a good friend and I want him to look like a good host. That's not why he's going to get up. Yet because of his impudence... And if you have the NIV, it probably says his persistence. He will rise and give him whatever he needs. In other words, because the guy keeps banging on the door, come give me some bread. I got to feed my neighbor. I'm not going away until you give me some bread. The guy will finally get up and give him some bread. Why? Because he's sick of the dude banging at his door, keeping him up. He knows he needs to go do it. Or else he's never going to get to sleep. Now, when I said the fourth thing is persisting in prayer, that we need to persist in prayer, I I really would have preferred to use the word impudence, but I didn't because I wanted five Ps. So there you go, right? And and why would impudence have been better? See, in verse 8, the NIV says persistence, but the ESV, I think, captures the understanding better when it says, translates with the word impudence. The man knocking at the door is filled with impudence. What does that mean? What does it mean, impudence? It means he's shamelessly presumptuous. That 
shamelessly presumptuous. To be impudent is to act without sensibility, to shame or disgrace. If you want to know what it looks like, hang around with me more. Not in my prayer life, (laughs) just in general. This is the guy who doesn't care what his neighbors think of him. He has the audacity to come right out and ask for something or say something that no one else would. Some of you know this guy. Some of you are this guy. This kind of shameless and presumptuous approach to making requests is what Jesus says. Is, that's how he says we're to pray. We aren't timidly dropping God clues about what we need, but boldly, shamelessly asking God for what we need and continuing to ask until he answers. If this annoyed neighbor will finally get up and answer, how much more our God who loves to hear and answer your prayer? That's what Jesus is getting at. But let me make a clarification because I want to be clear. Prayer is boldly, shamelessly, persistently asking God for what he promises to give. There's not an arrogance in doing that. There's a humility in taking God at his word. It is humility to believe he's there and that he hears us and that he's faithful to keep his promises. It is humility to shamelessly, persistently, impudently demand God give in prayer what he promised. That's humble. Asking God to keep his promises exalts his truthfulness to do what he says he'll do. It doesn't mean God will fulfill his promises. Now, I want to be clear about this. In all the particulars that you might attach to them. But he will fulfill them nonetheless. For example, God promises to save all his people. Promises to save all his people. Jesus went to the cross and paid for the sins of every one of his people. He will not fail to save these people. So we can boldly and persistently and shamelessly Ask God to save those who don't believe, and Jesus will not fail to save all those whom the Father has given him. And the point is that we should, shouldn't give up praying. Don't give up. Keep asking God until God answers. Expect God to answer and to keep his promises. God is not unwilling to answer prayer. He's eager to to give. He isn't there saying, well, you're knocked at the door enough and twisted my arm. I'm finally going to do it because I'm tired of hearing from you. That's not the point Jesus is making. That's the point he's making about the neighbor. If you're persistent with a neighbor, he'll finally do it because you twisted his arm enough. But this is your father. He wants to answer you. Look at Jesus goes down and deals with that with Another explanation, and this leads to the fifth point, which is that prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. Look at verse 9. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. I just want you to stop. This is a continuous action. This verb is the idea of a continuous action here, the way this is being used. All these verbs are here. And I tell you, ask, keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Now, here's going to be repeated another way. Seek, and you will find. Knock, a third way he wants to explain it, and it will be open to you. 
Now, in case you didn't hear Jesus, he's going to repeat it again. In case you doubted that if you really ask, you'll really receive, and if you really seek, you'll really find, and if you really knock, it'll really be open to you. In case you doubt that, let me say it again. For everyone who is asking, receives, and the one who's seeking, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Think Jesus is being repetitive enough and clear enough? He says the same thing three different ways twice. What father among you, verse 11, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, listen, you're evil. If you then who are evil, that's us. That's a condition of my heart on my own. And yet, I'm not going to stick a scorpion in my son's hand if he asks for an egg. I'm not going to put a serpent there if he asks for a fish. And I'm selfish. And I'll still give good gifts to my son. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? Now I want you to notice that. Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Because that's the ultimate answer to our prayer requests. There is no higher, greater, answer to your prayer request than the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus wants his disciples to know that prayer is powerful and effective. And he makes this startling statement, asking, seeking, knocking. And he's being repetitive. If we keep on asking, we will receive. In other words, if we ask God in prayer, he'll answer us. Do you hear that? He will answer you. Jesus is saying that prayer is powerful and effective. But he is stressing that prayer is effective and powerful, not because of how we pray, but because of who the God is who's answering. Jesus isn't saying if you twist God's arm enough, he'll answer. He's saying God is a good father and he wants to answer you. Can you imagine how hurt I would be? I I give my children good gifts. Imagine how hurt I'd be if, if after giving my kids all these great gifts and caring for them all these years, they assume I wouldn't care for them if they had a need or wouldn't be interested if they desired something good, so they never brought it to me. And I'm an evil man. I'd be hurt by that. I'm a man whose love and ability is limited. God is good and all-powerful, and his love is boundless. And we often treat him like he doesn't care like he doesn't want to answer, like maybe he's a bit stingy or isn't really hearing us, so we don't pray. I need to repent myself. I ask God too often for small things. I give him nickel and dime prayers when all the riches of God are mine in Christ Jesus. I realized this week that I don't believe these promises from Jesus as I should, and thus I don't pray well enough. I had a lot of time to pray this last week. And I realize I don't trust God will do really big things. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe he can do those things. But I, I, I generally don't pray like he will do those things. As soon as I see this, this statement that Jesus makes, twice in an unqualified fashion, ask, seek, knock, you'll receive, you'll find, the door will be opened, I start looking for, to add qualifications to it immediately. 
Why, why do I do that? Now, why, why don't I trust him? That's the God who's done many, this is the God who's done many things for me. He healed my son in the first year of life when he almost died twice. He healed my wife when she was sick. He planted this church and has provided for it all along. He blessed me with a great family. He saved me personally, called me to ministry, has provided for me all these years. He gave this church land when we asked for it. We just prayed, give us land. He did. We asked for a missions organization where we could train people to plant churches around the world in Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist people groups who've never heard the gospel. And God provided one for us. We even asked for specific amounts of money we needed for that, and God provided specific amounts of money we needed for it. He healed, he's healed the people, people that the elders have gone and prayed for, specifically gone and prayed for people as elders, and we've watched him heal them. He's provided for all of my needs, all of them. And, and when I was thinking about it this week, I realized he's basically, in fact, I can't think of one prayer I have ever prayed persistently that God has failed to answer. He's basically given me everything I have ever persistently asked for. Everything. More than that, he's the God who created all things, who redeemed his people in the Exodus, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who sent his son out of love to save us, who gave me the gift of his son eternally and gave me the gift of his spirit. That's why this is the God who says to us, ask and you shall receive. But I don't pray enough because I really don't believe he's for me and that he who gave his own son will also with him graciously give us all things. So I quickly qualify the text. I look for ways to explain it away. And I ask myself the question, how can we be a people who preach such an extravagantly gracious gospel from the hand of such an amazingly loving father and then pray as if he's stingy or unwilling to answer. He gives us what we need and often gives us what we want. But supremely above all, he gives us the Holy Spirit. What better gift can he give you than that? The Holy Spirit brings you into union with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He brings you into communion with them. What greater gift is there than that? He gives you life. You're adopted as a child of God. You get to live eternally. What greater answer to prayer is there than the gift of the Holy Spirit? Why don't we pray like it's true? See, our failure in prayer is our failure to believe the gospel. Did you hear that? It's our failure to believe that our Father really does love us in Christ enough to want to listen to us and that he really wants to care for us and even to bless us. So we need to believe the good news that God really is for us in Christ and that he who gave his, us his own son will really with him also graciously give us all things. And we need to pray accordingly. Let me pray. Father, we repent we repent for offering you nickel and dime prayers when all your riches are ours in Christ Jesus. We repent of our safe prayers and our small prayers. We repent of our prayers that treat you like you're stingy. We repent of our prayers that patronize the Father who gave us his Son and his Holy Spirit. 
Father, forgive us our weak and unfaithful prayers. Forgive us, our, us for treating you like your love is small and your grace is not sufficient. Father, we're thankful that you sent your son to trust you in our place. And we're thankful that your son ascended to your right hand where he ever intercedes for us. And we're thankful that you sent your spirit to live in us and to pray along with us when we don't know what to ask for. We confess that Jesus is the reason we have the privilege of prayer. We confess that we can't call you Father apart from Jesus. We confess that your reputation is and will be upheld by Jesus. We confess that your rule is inaugurated by and will be consummated by Jesus. We confess that you provide for us through Jesus and that our pardon comes because of Jesus and that our spiritual protection is found in Jesus and that the power in prayer comes because of Jesus giving us the Holy Spirit and praying with us. We confess that your purpose is Jesus' glory and the good of Jesus' people and we ask you to make us into a people who pray accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.